0: This is Outspoken, the podcast of the Center for Oral and Public History at California State University Fullerton. I'm your host, Benjamin Cothra. Here at Outspoken, we discuss projects from students, faculty, and the local community that incorporate public history. And because we believe there's no substitute for people telling their stories, Natalie Navar, the Center's archivist, will play some interview clips later on in the episode in our Out of the Archives segment. Welcome to Outspoken, my name is Benjamin Cothra, I teach history here at Cal State Fullerton and am a contributor to the Center for Oral and Public History. And With me today are two of Cal State Fullerton's finest, two scholars who will be discussing the women's movement and their own research and other issues related to current politics. One of our guests is a frequent guest, our director of the Center for Oral and Public History, Natalie Fusakis professor of history here. Welcome back,
1: Natalie. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here again.
0: And making her outspoken debut, (laughs) Donna Nickel, associate professor of women and gender studies here at Cal State Fullerton. Welcome to Outspoken.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, Both of you are engaged, it strikes me, in really interesting research projects related to women, politics, power, Uh, institutions. And I wondered if you could share with our listeners a bit about the the two projects that you're working on. And Donna, maybe start with you.
2: Uh, Well, my current research looks at um, the California State University trustee system specifically, and how the trustees have made decisions with regards to diversity and affirmative action. And I'm looking at uh, maybe a 30-year period through the lens of the first African-American trustee on the board, Dr. Claudia Hampton. And then her subsequent, she subsequently became the first woman to ever chair the board uh, five years later. She's the second longest serving trustee, uh, serving 20 years, and served under four different governors. And I really found out about her kind of through happenstance. I was looking for another, through an archive for something else and saw this picture of this woman, and it said, Trustee Hampton. I said, who is she? And so I just literally Googled her name, and was like, oh, my gosh. And there's nothing that has been really documented or written about her except for a few newspaper articles after she passed away. Uh, She was named. There's a building at Cal State Dominguez named after her, uh, and that's pretty much all the historical record shows. And then once I found out that she was a trustee, And there's scores of documents uh, at Cal State Dominguez in the archives about her work on the trustees. But little did I know that she was the director for uh, community and urban affairs for LA Unified School District during desegregation. And so it was her responsibility to go out and troubleshoot public relations nightmares for the district. Uh, conflicts between the NAACP parent groups and the district, and so she had a lot of power that she used in the K-12 settings, um, and so she actually was a really good fit to get into the trustees. But she was atypical. She was appointed by Ronald Reagan, which is what was fascinating to me is like Ronald Reagan, a black woman, a Democrat. And the way she uh, came to his notice was through the NAACP, ironically. Uh, The NAACP uh, had a meeting with Alex Sheriffs, who was his um, uh, secretary of education for Reagan when he was governor. And Alex Sheriffs just invited uh, a woman named Verna Carson to um, his office to talk about education issues in the black community. And Verna Carson, brought in 20 people instead of just one because she wanted some experts with her. And from that one meeting, he kind of whittled down the group, down to Claudia Hampton, over a year period. So she was vetted for about a year to kind of figure out what her politics were. They had discussions about race issues. Uh, he actually had her crisscrossing the state, meeting him at different um, at different times to talk about, okay, this happened and blew up. What do you? What's your take on this?
0: Those and, were those were other days, weren't they? Yeah. When when there were there was some bipartisan uh, possibilities uh, here and and elsewhere. Yeah,
2: and and Scherz was an interesting figure too because he was um, embroiled in the uh, he was the the dean of students, if I'm not mistaken, at UC Berkeley during the free speech movement, and he really caught a lot of hell for what he uh, did with regards to students and standing up to Clark Kerr. Um, and so the, the fact that he was willing to bring in um, this woman and to really sit down and have deep conversations about these pressing issues was pretty remarkable. And that he just told Reagan I would like to see her on the board of trustees since sheriffs was going to move to the trust, uh, to the chancellor's office. And so that's how it really happened. Wow. And while she was on the board, she really fundamentally changed the board's attitude about diversity issues. They really kind of talked around them or reacted in the at the last moment. And when she became the chair of the Board of Trustees, she actually forced them to deal with these issues in much more meaningful ways. So she would bring in experts to um, kind of guide their conversations about particularly uh, what is not known is that she's done a lot of work on behalf of Latino students, Mexican-American students in particular, um, and how because the board felt like they had done enough for African-American students by creating black studies. And she said, okay, well, now that you seem exhausted with this group, let's bring in another group and try to help them out. Um,
0: so you're, so she, she had a pretty substantial impact, not only, I suspect, because of her ethnicity, but because she was a woman and a different kind of voice than had been on the board. And that reminds me of your project, Natalie, because this is, these are themes that come up over and over in, in your project. So tell us a bit more about that.
1: Um, So, as as the listeners may know a little bit about um, it already, but I've been uh, running this Women, Politics, and Activism since Suffrage Oral History Project here at the Center since uh, 2013, and it really grew out of um, the news that was happening at the time about the fact that there could potentially be no women on the L.A. City Council. Fortunately for me, since I live in Los Angeles and for the women of Los Angeles, uh, Nuri Martinez ended up winning in a special election and now serves as the only um, woman on the Los Angeles City Council. But really what it got me thinking about is, well, A, why is it that we still have so few women in positions of political power? Um, Let's look back at the trajectory. We've made great gains since the 70s, but we've sort of stagnated and in fact gone in reverse you know in terms of the state legislature in fact women went down from 25% to almost 20% in this last election cycle so in some areas we're still reversing whereas on the LA board of supervisors we now have four women which is a is a is a wonderful small victory in the last um, in the 2016 elections but really it got me thinking about what are the contributions of women what are the contributions of a diverse group of women and certainly in thinking about what Donna was just talking about, really a lot of the women that we've been interviewing have been first in what they were doing or seconds, which even being a second, if you're the only one and you're the second then. Um, so for example, I interviewed uh, Jan Perry, who's the second African-American to serve on the Los Angeles City Council. And in a couple of weeks, I'll be actually interviewing Rita Walters, who was the first African-American on the Los Angeles City Council. but. We've interviewed Laura Chick, who was the first woman to serve in citywide office in the city of Los Angeles. Um, And so, and then we've interviewed activists who have taken a leading role in everything from uh, transgender activism to people involved in current Black Lives Matter movement, and really looking at not trying to draw like similarities between all these women, but to make a website eventually that will have all these stories so that women thinking about getting involved, even young men who are trying to understand what women in power looks like, that teachers will hopefully be able to use this website to expose students to diverse voices and diverse paths, how people get into politics, why they do it. I can't, I can't answer with oral history why women don't get involved, but I can shine a light on the reasons that they do. And does it matter, for example, that their parents talked about politics with them while they were growing up? Does it matter that um, they had a role model or somebody that they talked to? Or does it matter that they had a formative moment in grade school or junior high school where they stood up for themselves or others and that gave them the confidence to then realize later in life, I need to be the voice that stands up for the people around me? Um, so that in a nutshell, is what myself and my students and my staff here at the center have been doing for the last four years is recording these voices. and hopefully funding permitting we'll keep doing it for a couple more years.
0: Well, exciting projects. Uh, this is Women's History Month, and you're you're here for a reason. we're We're covering bases here. And we just had Black History Month, and uh, I think, the two, the two uh, work well together because uh, in terms of activism, we've seen not only the Black Lives Matter uh, movement in the past three years or so, but we now have a sort of re-energized women's movement uh, on the ground. And uh, we were thinking about this and thinking about January 21st, that women's movement was one of the largest coordinated demonstrations in American history, not the largest. Uh, on a single day. So what's your take on this, and and what are the issues at play, and how would you define what that march was about and how it relates to contemporary issues for women?
2: Well, I think that the Women's March, in part, was a response to Trump, but I think it was uh, a response to some larger issues, um, as Uh, noted, uh, Natalie noted, there's been some regression in terms of progress. Uh, In women's studies we always talk about waves of feminism, progress and regression and I think we've seen particularly through uh, media, particularly social media, you can see some of the worst of um, behavior with regards to ideas about women and women's progress and women's looks even. um, The way in which uh, Hillary Clinton was um, treated through the election. Um, I think all of that was, you know, kind of a culmination of a great deal of frustration for a lot of women that, um, though we talk about women's progress, we talk about women's progress as if it is everlasting and that we don't need to keep moving forward. So I, I do think that there are some critical areas where we need to make some progress, um, particularly uh, with regards to uh, wage inequality between men and women, with regards to um, uh, women's uh, bodies and you know, reproductive justice, uh, but also with regards to violence against women in multiple ways. Um, and I think Black Lives Matter Uh, really tried to attend to that especially because the creators were three queer identified African American women uh, and to try to be inclusive of that but what gets played is a focus on race and a focus on black men as opposed to the scores of black women who have been killed um and Kimberly Crenshaw has tried to address this through the um African-American policy form they created the Say Her Name campaign. So I do think that it speaks to larger issues, but at this point, I still see it as a moment. I'm not ready to call the Women's March a movement just
0: yet. Yeah, and there was some anger because uh, the, the now president didn't seem to pay a price for Calling Hillary Clinton a nasty woman, or for his, the tape from ten years ago that that uh, showed his misbehavior, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that had to fuel some of it, but I think you're right. There are these larger issues. What's your take, Natalie?
1: Well, I I think you know, especially having been doing so. One of the things that this project it grew out of this you know moment in 2013, but and I had heard inklings maybe that Hillary was going to run for president, but that is actually put a current context around a lot of these interviews that I couldn't have really imagined when I started the project. So the Women's March, I I would agree with Donna, you know, we'll see where it goes. I think the organizers, they had all the right things. It had a diverse group of women organizing it. It had uh, a diverse group of people at the marches, more so than previous sort of marches that I've either been involved with or studied as a a women's historian, um, and they're making real efforts to try to maintain the momentum. Um, but I, I think Hillary Clinton's candidacy shone a light on things that we, as scholars of women's history, were aware of. But I don't think the public really got, you know, if he, the flaws were great for the current president, Hillary Clinton was not without her own flaws, but. Hers were given an equivalency to his that I think were extremely unwarranted. Um, And for me, one of the things that that has really made me hone in on as a scholar in thinking about this project and these oral histories that we'll put online is this idea that for a woman to run for office or to be a leader of any kind, you're held to a much higher standard and one in which really perfection is the only way to be seen as viable. And my hope is that maybe if you put forward lots and lots of stories of women who have been activists and leaders who are extremely successful, but who also have flaws, and we make a case or make it more normal for women, for people to see stories of women who are incredibly effective at what they did when they influenced policy from within or from without, but we're also flawed individuals, the more models of leadership where women are seen as not having to be perfect, that they could be successful without being perfect, then maybe that will help us move past where we are now because I think we're sort of stuck, um, you know, and women in movements that are not in elected office get held to a higher standard than men who lead some of these kinds of movements. And so. I think there's a lot for us to try to do, both as scholars, but also as um, citizens who are engaged in trying to to move us to a more just, equal playing field um, with men.
2: Well, you know, I do think, though, that the what the election of Trump did is to open up a, con- a needed conversation among feminist scholars in particular, because every time there's a conversation in media with regards to uh, women's issues, they're interviewing feminist scholars, typically. They're not talking to the average woman who might not even use the language of feminism, might even do feminism but not call themselves a, a feminist. So I think the problem is there's, there's been this kind of disconnect between academic feminism and then what women are kind of dealing with on a day-to-day basis, and then how does that translate into uh, how we see candidates and how we treat candidates. Um, one of the things that was really frustrating for me in watching the Hillary Clinton campaign it were her surrogates, um, like Madeleine Albright and Gloria Steinem, who would go out and make these very sweeping generalizations about young women, who would make these kind of convert, you know, these, you know, a woman should be ashamed of herself if they don't support uh, you know Hillary Clinton or other women. And so that's that I thought contributed to this kind of polarization of women who could have really be, you know come out in greater force for Hillary Clinton. It also pulled it also you know brought up a lot of race issues that have you know that people are voting a lot of times for their race interest as opposed to their gender interest. And so that's something that we need to be cognizant of that there are a lot of issues at play when people go to po- go to vote. And um, I have found that a lot of times women, particularly white women of a certain socioeconomic status, kind of vote with their race interest um, as opposed to their gender interest. The gender interest tends to be secondary. Well, that
0: was borne out in the demographics uh, in the Trump <laughs> Yeah, <future>. unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. And, and uh, another thing that was was really striking to me about the march itself was the, I was uh, involved in some of the groups that were trying to do the organizing. And when uh, young women and women of color and queer women were trying to uh, you know, assert themselves or put forth an idea, there was a lot of resentment that was directed toward them that we were tearing the movement apart We weren't showing enough solidarity by being silent. And so I think, I know a lot of my friends who would have gone to the march um, were, didn't go because they felt like they thought about these other groups after the fact. I mean, Dolores Huerta and um, Angela Davis were added to the organizing platform after the fact. And so I think it's one of the things if you really want to have uh, solidarity, you have to think, you have to plan with intersectionality using that as a organizing basis that we're gonna bring in these diverse voices. It's difficult because you gotta have a lot of difficult conversations about privilege and about class issues. Um, And I think that's one of the you know, unfortunately, if you're a progressive and if you're on the left, you know you you've got to make space for having that kind of conversation, as opposed to saying everybody's going to do groupthink. But I think it would be valuable for us to have those kind of conversations with regards to activism on the front end, instead of hoping everybody will show up. Uh, like I know with Prop 8 many years ago, a lot of African Americans didn't go vote. Um, they voted for Obama, but they didn't vote to support. Um, uh, LGBTQ folks having the right to get married and a lot of uh, uh, people in the gay community asked well, why didn't they support if they supported Obama why didn't they support this and I said did you go into those communities and ever talk to folks and educate them about why this issue is important and they're just like well I just figured they would they would know you can't assume that and so I think same thing with regards to Um, gender conversations is that we can't assume that we're all on the same page or that we're experiencing gender in the same way and I think if we did that a little bit more consciously and with more intention I think we would have produced an even bigger turnout and I think the turnout was great, It it was monumental I just think that in order for it to have some lasting effect we need to we need to step back and critically assess what were some pieces that were missing.
1: And hopefully they are doing that. I don't know. I'm not part of those conversations. Well,
0: that raises an issue that I think we're, we're kind of touching on, but I want to address it directly, and that's the issue of leadership. There are several models, right? There's the model of elective office. There's the model of activism, activist leadership. Uh, There's been a consciousness in, well, there was certainly the case in Occupy movement, but also in Black Lives Matter and to an extent in uh, the Women's March, of a decentralized model of leadership. The advantage being purportedly is more inclusive, right? More voices are at the table. Disadvantage, perhaps the, the larger public, the larger conversation doesn't know who to listen to or what what voice uh, is going to, to package the message for them. So public relations becomes more difficult. Uh, could you address this, this issue of leadership and, and uh, what the advantages, disadvantages of this, this model seem to be going forward?
2: Well, I, I think I'm very much in two minds with regards to decentralization versus having something a, a bit more centralized like you said, there are definitely pros and cons. I think with regards to Black Lives Matter in particular, um, it was necessary to have that model simply because they their um, platform deals with a lot of different issues. And so they really work from this kind of situational leadership model, where whatever the situation at hand is, we will prop up whomever is the expert in that field. Mm-hmm. So while of course, is to end state sanctioned violence. There's many forms of state sanctioned violence and so they have different experts to deal with the different forms.
0: Whether it's policing or prison system or, or what have you.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah, and so I think that the flexibility of that model is a good thing, um, but I think what they have started to do with regards to media is that they put, they have been making some effort to put uh, some of the leadership of the initial creators like Alicia Garza routinely does media interviews so that they know that there there is a focal point. Plus another thing was that there were a number of men who would go and say they were Black Lives Matter when they were not remotely connected to the group. Um, I'm thinking of a guy in particular who was on the ground during Ferguson um, whose name is escaping me at the moment but Oh, DeRay, uh, DeRay Mc, McKissin, if McKissick I'm not, yeah. if I'm not mistaken and so he was called, you know, getting interviewed as if he was a representative for Black Lives Matter and he never had a conversation with any of the chapters so they started to realize they needed to have a person, a media person, a person who was uh, able to talk to the media on a regular basis um, while the other members did a lot of the social media campaign and behind the scenes. So I think they still have, they have centralization in their public relations, but they're in terms of how they do their planning and programming and decision-making, it's still very loosely defined. And I think that works for that moment. I don't know if it would work in other situations. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking to, uh, my own research and the way in which Claudia Hampton had to kind of consolidate her power was to go through this very traditional model and in fact, play to the sexism of the day in order to be effective. So let me give you an example. Please. (laughs) When she was uh, elected as the chair of the board, they had a telephone tree type of uh, situation where only a few members would talk to each other before a vote needed to be cast. She had been closed out of those meetings for numbers of years, and she had been on the board for about five years before she got nominated. Suddenly, she started to make dinners on Mm -hmm. a regular basis every single month for this core group that were really the power brokers behind trustee boards they sat on particular committees that were influential and they would trade votes at her home because she would cook for them wow and so that's just this one example at first i was very upset and kind of nauseous to my stomach when i heard it but then i looked at how much she got from that and how she would trade in okay i'll get this president at dominguez if you can get that sculpture at cal state northridge and that's how she played her game. And so as much as it seems repugnant to us now, it was what she had to do in order to get any kind of access, even though she was in a leadership position.
0: Interesting. Leadership, Natalie.
1: Well, so two things. One, in our, in our interviews that we've been doing, we ask the women, you know, what do you see as the difference between the way men and women lead? um and most of them are qualified And say, I'm making gross generalizations but that you know women tend to be more collaborative in the way that they approach leadership when in the way that they approach getting things done um but you can then also look at some of these women and how they had to operate where they're the single women's voice i um, mean they have to bring men along with them they can't get anything done right if you're the only woman sitting on the city council you got to have three or four, depending on the number of people, allies to get something passed by the city council. Um, in one case, I'm thinking of this woman, Ursula Kennedy, who was the first woman elected to the uh, Tustin City Council and the first woman to serve as its mayor, and she served for 20 years. And she was a Republican, got accused of being a rhino, you know, Republican in name only, because she um, was also Although when we asked her if she was a feminist, she was sort of skirted the word. But as a historian, I would say she was definitely a feminist. Um, but And she favored. So she wasn't on the council pushing women's issues. But it was really important sometimes to have a woman in a leadership position when issues came about in the city. For example, they had a family planning clinic that became a focal point for the pro-life movement in the late 1980s. Um, and this was the era in which Pro-life movement would bring busloads of people to demonstrate outside these clinics, and she was really well aware of the fact that number one, this clinic, just like Planned Parenthood does today, performed many more things than abortions. Right, did lots of family planning for the city of Tustin. There were two Catholic conservative male city councilmen who wanted a to make sure this clinic went out of business, and b wanted the Tustin City Council to take a stance on being pro- pro-life. And so it took a woman like Kennedy to be on that council to, number one, bring some voice of reason and then get the other colleagues who were not, they. I don't think they knew what they were going to do in this situation, but she was the leader in this and she had to lead with men you know, she had to bring them along. So I think it's a really interesting, um, cause collaboration is wonderful. I mean, one of the reasons I like doing oral history and I like working in public history is I love to be a collaborator, but the challenge with collaboration, whether it's running an organization is if you have dispersed leadership, it becomes a difficult because there are moments where some one single person either has to come out and be the person who speaks for an issue or come out and be the person who makes a decision. And in the collaborative model, (laughs) that can be a challenge if you haven't designated that person. Um, And so I think for each organization and each individual that has to, and that's I think one of the things our oral histories shine light on is the different ways that collaborative leadership looks and operates in these different contexts.
0: Those contexts include, and these are both areas of, of interest for you, Natalie, elective office, but also grassroots activism, non-elective politics.
1: Right, and I was actually thinking in, my, in particular from my first book when I was looking at grassroots women who were advocating for child care policy from outside the state who had to convince, number one, male legislators, but then they also had to get some male voices to help work those male legislators because they didn't have the ins with them. And so it really took an effort of building a coalition um, that wouldn't necessarily be natural for them, but they needed that coalition in order to make the change that they wanted to make.
0: Thinking about where we are now uh, with the Women's March, will that have momentum? What kind of leadership will it have? Will it be diverse at the top? Where do you see it going? Where do you see the, the, the future of this movement and what would keep it going uh, maybe just the presence of Donald Trump in the White House will keep it going, but I suspect there needs to be more than that.
1: I, f- I feel like, um, number one, maybe we shouldn't call it a movement because I think there's going to be multi pronged things happening. For example, since I am studying all these women in elected office, I've been paying a lot of attention to the fact that since Trump's election, the number of women, the number of people saying they want to run for office has gone up, but the number of women who are going to these training meetings that are run by Emerge, that are run by Hope, that are run by these organizations, that entire goal is to train young women to run for office. I mean, they're blowing their numbers out of the water. So I think the first thing will be to see what happens in 2018 in terms of electoral politics and women. Because and I, not just at the at the congressional no, level. No, I'm talking but at like the, at the I, local I, in fact, regional level. Last week level. I talked to a woman who's a faculty member here at Fullerton who as a result of Trump's election, a group of moms at her school, uh, Republican and Democrat but who are all not in favor of the way Trump is running the country, have formed a group, they've been meeting and trying to f- figure out what they're going to do as a group, and they have Muslim women, white women, a whole and one of the things she said they're gonna do is try to get one of those women to run for city council in addition to figuring out how they advocate for these particular issues in their community. So yeah, we're not, I'm not talking about necessarily women who are gonna run for president in 2020. I think it'll be really interesting to see where, and the different kinds, I mean, we're talking young women. I've heard interviews with women in their 20s of all ethnic groups who are ready to take on the issues in their community, or maybe even run for Congress. So that's just one area, and I'm sure Donna has some other thoughts.
2: Well, you know, I teach a class called Women in Leadership. And um, one of the things, half of the class really kind of deals with women in traditional, whatever is called traditional leadership roles, uh, or in business and politics, but the other half is on grassroots activism. And I'm particular about introducing this concept from Mary Belenke called uh, developmental leadership it's where you take women who live in their communities and they have a community problem that has to be solved right away and instead of having to they don't have the time to go through training they just get out there and do it and so balinky calls it a tradition that has no name that women are out there doing these things on a meso level where men are pretty much trained to think about the micro level and the macro level, women are taught to think of on this kind of community level. And what are these kind of community things that need to be solved? And I had a model growing up. My grandmother um, helped to create the first food co-op for the Imperial Courts projects in Watts back in the late 1970s. And she got a $1.14 million grant from uh, Jer- Jerry Brown from the Food Policy Council. And so what the model that I was steeped in is a model of, there's a problem, get out there and go fix it. Find the resources necessary to get out there and get it done. Don't wait for the city council to come feed people in Watts. Uh, I mean, ironically, in 2016, the average median income for a family of four in Watts is $6,681 per family. So it hasn't really changed at all, but what my grandmother did, besides uh, creating the first food co-op across from the projects, they did the first study of food insecurity of Watts. And so they went to each home and interviewed people to find out what they needed. We finally got a supermarket in 1987 after uh, 22 years after the Watts riots. And so she went to the city council with those results and that's how we got the Kenneth Hahn Plaza that we have that was created in 87 so I think what's important you know is for women to get out there and do stuff in their community right away don't wait for a book to teach you how to do it don't wait for I mean get as much training as you can if it's free and available but if you don't have it march around the corner to you know there there's the city in Los Angeles there were I don't know if they're still there anymore, but these little substations where you can go register a complaint. I was six years old and I said the streetlight didn't come wasn't working on a consistent basis because my grandmother taught me that's the place to go to get services. And so those are little things that we can do really early to plant the seed in young girls and young women that you can you can be a leader very early and by modeling using the resources that you have around you, but also to think about what are the future possibilities for how the neighborhood could be changed. And I think with the women that you, Natalie's referring to, um, coming together and thinking about somebody's got to go run for Congress or run for city council or something, we need to plant the seed that, you know, what should our future look like? What, what, and what are women's roles within that future? And I think one of the problems is that we're working in survival mode too long instead of thinking about the future.
1: Well, I think as a historian, if if we can shine and make known the stories like your grandmother, the more stories from the past that we can teach people so that they know that they're not the first one to do this in their community, right? That that so-and-so formed a food co-op. I interviewed Jackie Goldberg, and she was talking about the food co-op that they formed in Silver Lake in the late 60s -hmm. because they were all activists and not making a lot of money and they needed to figure out a way for them all to feed their families and live and you know so they had this whole thing that they developed and operated for 20 years and and so I'm sure there's a lot and that's a white woman and you have your grandmother and so and you have innumerable stories that people don't know about about people making a difference on the micro level that then does something much larger right and so you never know if changing something in your community can then actually have a ripple effect. But if you change it in your community, you're gonna feel it immediately first. And one of the things I hope with this project that we're doing, and as a historian that I do, is continue to shine light on stories that are unknown, right? I mean, I don't even think people knew that there were this many women on the city council in the 80s and 90s that I've found who were doing, you know, it's not a glamorous job being on the Tustin City Council or the, you know, Compton City Council or any of these city councils, but those women, ran for that at a time when there were no other women because they felt like they needed to speak for their community right they're not trying to speak to the president of the United States they're trying to speak for the people in their particular neighborhood region and and that's
2: what I would hope that the women's march would um, if nothing else to inspire women to to think locally about getting involved because I don't know if because our national fixation with presidential politics there's this kind of you know neglect of what's happening in our in our neighborhoods and I think that women are really effective at going door to door and talking to people and finding out what is it that they need you know or what are the issues in the community and so to utilize that you know, that skill set or, or whatever natural tendency that might be. Um, I, I, but I also think that it's important for us to not think about leadership as male or female. I, it's just leadership. You know, you just do what you have to do in order to lead a group. And we spend too much time saying that there's masculine traits and feminine traits with regards to leadership. And I think that a good male leader listens to people just as much as a woman leader. Uh, So I think we have a lot of possibilities, but I think the possibilities need to start closer to home first before we start branching out.
0: You're both talking as well about a kind of consciousness that this isn't the first time somebody has gone up against power and uh, learned lessons and, and changed the world anyway, uh, I had a professor say to me in graduate school that the civil rights movement began the first time an enslaved person jumped ship.
1: In other yeah. words, there's never not <laughs> been
0: a civil rights movement. Civil rights movement didn't start in 1954 with the Montgomery Bus boy guide. It was, there's never not been a civil rights movement. That's true. I would suspect you'd agree with women's movement too. Uh, as long as, in particular, as long as there are still issues of inequality to be resolved, uh, there's going to be a movement. And all of these these uh, specific uh, campaigns are just part of that larger movement. Yeah. Um, you both talk about young women. Uh, where do you expect those girls of today in 20 years, what kind of a landscape do you anticipate them uh, coming of age and being a part of. In in 20 more years, where do you think uh, the movement will be? And I know you're historians. I'm I'm going to say right now,
1: I have a very hard time. I'm not very comfortable with predicting 20 years from now, because having studied activists who say they thought what was going to happen in 20 years, and then they're still doing the same thing 20 years later, I mean... I'm also an optimist. So I hope that, you know, Barbara Boxer was here yesterday talking about Martin Luther King's, you know, talk about the arc of justice and that you're constantly trying to move that arc in the right direction. So I'm hoping that we're going to make some progress, but I'm not going to make a claim like, oh, yeah, women are going to be 50 percent of all leaders and running, you know. 50% of CEOs, and I just can't, I don't feel, knowing history. Good
0: answer, because we couldn't even predict the 2016 election.
1: (laughs) Right, right. But I I hope that by the work that Donna is doing, the work that I'm doing, that my students are doing on this project, that young women will have more models available to them so that when they are thinking, what can I do? What do I want to do with my life? that they see multiple options, that I, I can make change within my community, I can run for office, I can, you know, but to me, what I want is young women to be engaged citizens. I don't care what that means and what their contribution is. Maybe it's just that they vote every year and they convince a bunch of other people in their neighborhood to vote, right? That would be fine with me too. They don't have to be out there leading the charge, but that they realize that They have a voice and that their voice can be used locally their voice can be used amongst their friends their voice can be used to to make small change or maybe big change
2: yeah you know as a historian in women's studies uh, i'm constantly um, bringing in history even in in classes that aren't deemed a history class so in the women in leadership class i actually have the students read about Mary McLeod Bethune because of her, what is called her pragmatic idealism, where she took, extrapolated from uh, Booker T. Washington's pragmatism and Du Bois' idealism in the formation of her school. And I said to the students, think about what are these different types of leadership that you like and think about how can you put them together so that they can be useful to you. And so the idea of of having models and exemplars for for young people to go back to, I think documenting that history and exposing them to that history is very useful. I did um, for UCLA, I did a seminar uh, for their dream, they have a dream resource center similar to ours um, where I did a whole history of interracial social justice activism like a history of where different races would come together and the students were sitting there like we had no idea that you know the you know that you know with regards to like food issues that Mexican Americans and Filipinos worked together we didn't know that the creation of the NAACP was founded by white liberals with some help from, um, you know, folks like Du Bois and Ida B. Wells. So a lot of this missing history, I think, is important because they need to see that people have done these things, and you know, it's just a matter of them figuring out in this more current moment what tools can you use that might add a modern twist to some very longstanding issues. I too am hesitant to. Predict what the future will look like in 20 years. Uh, I really misfired with regards to uh, Trump getting elected. Uh, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't see that one coming. Though I had some. I didn't. I didn't think there was enough excitement for Hillary Clinton. I could feel that, and that had me worried. But what I do think is the landscape is going to show is that they're going to be more. Um, currently marginalized voices speaking up and folks are going to have to figure out how to deal with that and how can women as a collective be at the forefront of making sure those marginal, marginalized voices are heard and respected in traditional places of power um, in in politics and in city council meetings and things like that um, and how how can these marginalized voices possibly help women with regards to organizing? I mean, if you think about the women's liberation movement, um, there was a great deal of kind of cross uh you know, cross, I don't know if you want to call it, um, they shared a lot of ideas about, you know, organizing tactics with the Civil Rights Movement and sometimes with the Black Power Movement. So we need to try to find that again. You know, how can we learn from each other? Uh, and I think it would be valuable to present that to young people, like this is, we actually did this. You're not the first one to do it. Not in a, not in a, you know, a way to, you know, talk down to them in a condescending way, but here, here's something that you can be, that you can use.
0: Well, you both sound like good historians rather than predictors but also optimists. I want to thank Donna Nickel from Women's Studies for coming uh, to Outspoken today, and Natalie Fusekis from the Center for Oral and Public History. And now let's listen to Natalie Navar as she introduces excerpts in Out of the Archives.
3: Hello, my name is Natalie Navar, and I'm the archivist for the Center for Oral and Public History. This part of Outspoken is called Out of the Archives. Every podcast cough has, Out of the Archives is where I'll be highlighting certain oral histories and other findings from our collections. Throughout this segment, we will be listening to clips of oral histories of women, mainly from our most current oral history project, Women, Politics, and Activism and Suffrage. Or to shorten it, the WPA project. This project has been selected by the John Randolph Haynes and Dora Haynes Foundation for a major research grant. Our director, Dr. Natalie Fusakis, is leading the Oral History Project. The first phase of this project involves interviewing 300 to 400 women in Southern California who have been actively engaged in politics and activism from post-World War II era to the present. We want to document these women's voices to demonstrate the myriad of ways women have participated in activism from formal elected office to local community-based organizations. The first set of clips are from women gaining access to power by becoming founders of their own organizations. The first clip you will listen to comes from an oral history with Sue Savery, the founder of the Newport Beach Democratic Women's Club and former candidate for Congress for the 48th District. Listen as she talks about the beginning of the club.
4: So when we created the Newport Beach Women's Democratic Club, I spent seven years as the president and, oh, we just created hell around here. The Newport Beach City Council wanted to put a Ronald Reagan statue in front of City Hall and we said going to happen. Unless you're putting JFK across from him, you are not going to do this. There are over 500,000 Democrats in Orange County. It is the highest number of Democrats for any county in the state other than LA and San Diego, more than San Francisco. That's how many are here, and we don't know it. We act like I'm the only one around. That's a half a million Democrats. That's gigantic. And everybody is so fearful because they've been kind of trained in this model. So maybe what I tried to do is present a model of a proud Democrat who's willing to stand up and say, these are our values, and this is what this country is built on, and be proud of it, and then come together. And I've tried to do that up and down the coast, The next clip you will listen to is part of an oral history with Anila
3: Ali, the founder of the Irvine Pakistani Parents Association and founder of the American Muslim Women's Empowerment Council. Listen as she talks about her family and the strong women that have empowered her in her own life.
5: I grew up in a family full of enlightened people. My grandmother was the first Indian Muslim assemblywoman hundred years ago. So you can imagine that, you know, getting my genes from my grandmother of uh, being an activist and women's rights leader. I grew up with women who were strong, women who had jobs, women who were powerful, and they were were the matriarchs of the house. So I think women have an edge on being compassionate. (laughs) So I think we, we lead, as well as men, but I think we have a little bit more perspective and we have a little bit more compassion. With no offense to men. But I think, um, you know, that's how we're different. Because, you know, we're mothers and we have a soft heart. And um, we have, obviously, the the female perspective. Um, we bring that, you know, that calmness to leadership and we bring that... Um, Let's say, you know, the female touch to the leadership and um, compassion comes
3: naturally with it.
5: So, slightly different, but I think oh. women are brilliant le-
3: leaders. The next narrator I will highlight is Betty Varan, the founder of Rasa Sharan, the first federally funded battered women's shelter in Los Angeles in 1978. Listen as she describes what inspired her to start this organization.
6: It was the fall of. Uh, 75. That I read the Ms. Magazine article on battered women. And I had no clue, I mean, none, that that was going on. I mean, just, I grew up in a very nonviolent environment. Mm-hmm. Not that it probably wasn't going on in some households, but among my family and my friends, that, you know, I never knew anything. And so I read this article, and I was so stunned. And then the next month came the letters from the battered women. And it completely freaked me out. I mean, I couldn't think of anything more horrifying than being in a situation like that and not having any way to get out. Because I was reading about women whose families would throw them out if they left their husbands and all that, all that ugliness. So I got on the phone... I, well, I went to the Yellow Pages of the, <laughs> the Los Angeles, the Yellow Pages, and I thought, there's got to be some social services that I can get involved with and volunteer. And I called all of the social services that I could find in the Yellow Pages. Nobody was doing anything for battered women.
3: These three women were real trailblazers in their fields. The second set of clips are from women giving advice on how to get involved. The next snippet comes from an oral history with Jasmine Abdullah, who founded the Black Lives Matter Pasadena chapter. Listen as she talks about how women can get involved in political activism.
7: Unconditionally love yourself so that you can unconditionally love everyone else. Stay true to yourself and who you are as a woman. And that little gut feeling within your your body that you feel that, that, that tell you to go this way, and then you end up going that way. Stop not listening to that voice. Because us women, we have... True, true, true unconditional discernment that really lies within us where we can tell the future if we want to, you know, by touching someone. So I would just let you guys know to stay true to yourself. Listen to that voice within yourself because you're right. You're right, you're right, you're right. Um, Lead by example, lead with light and love, and always remain diligent and perseverant with anything that you want to accomplish.
3: In this next clip, I will highlight Lindsay Horvath, who is the current city councilwoman and former mayor of West Hollywood. Listen as she gives advice to young people as to how they can get involved in politics.
8: Well, I think um, all young people being involved in politics is important um, because government is owned by all of the people, and the more we have people, um, especially of a new generation, engaged, the more the decisions that are made by that government are going to look like the things that we care about um specific to women's equality i mean i think uh, i'm very i very much believe that you have to have diversity and representation and because women sometimes need to be asked more often than men getting women engaged at an earlier age gives them more of an opportunity um or a greater likelihood that they may at some point choose to run for office or become inv- engaged in a, you know appointed office of some sort thinking about getting involved in government um <clears throat> But, you know, the voices of young women matter, and not just for the future, but for now.
3: And for the last clip, you will listen to part of an oral history with Cindy Misogowski. She's a former city councilwoman for Los Angeles. Listen as she gives advice for women to get involved in politics.
8: Just jump in. uh, Jump in um, at the local level, whether it's a neighborhood council, whether it's volunteering on a campaign, whether it's taking a nonprofit um, and, and using whatever you're doing to connect with the folks at government, to see where and how they can be of help to you, or you know, provide streams of, of grant advice, um, and networking. I mean, staying in touch with, with other women uh, who are either in the stream. In fact, one of the women who did work for me, who still, I, I have some hope that she might run for office Sunday. I mean, she uh, is an African-American who worked with uh, sort of a professional group of, of African-American women who look to nurture uh, women who are still going to run for office. But um, it's that it's it's stay part of the system and and don't deny yourself. I mean, she'd she'd be an incredibly strong candidate, you know. And there there are others who have run. We um, we've just got to keep that momentum going and that that stream of uh, of new 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 people into the system. I hope you all enjoyed these clips. Before I end this segment, I
3: want to let everyone know that the Center is collecting materials from the January 21st International Women's March on Washington. We have already collected dozens of posters and other kinds of ephemera. If you have any material pertaining to this event, please feel free to contact us that you want to donate. And of course, if anyone is interested in any of these oral histories I presented in today's podcast, you can come on by to cough, and either I or one of my coworkers will help you. Along with the WPA Oral History Project, we have around 300 oral history projects that contain almost 6,000 oral histories. Go to our website at cough.fullerton.edu to research more. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. I hope to see you soon, and thank you for listening to Out of the Archive.
0: Thank you for listening to Outspoken, the podcast of the Center for Oral and Public History. This is Benjamin Cothra. Our episodes are produced and edited by Carrie Rael. You may find all Outspoken episodes on our website, coph.fullerton.edu, where you can also learn more about the narrators featured on this episode. And we invite you to stop by. Visit us at the Center for Oral and Public History, located at Pollock Library South, room 363, at Cal State Fullerton. Email us at coph at fullerton.edu. Tweet us at coph underscore csuf or find us on Facebook. Thank you for listening. Until next time, this is Outspoken.